Dr. Luis Sandoval is accomplished in the fields of mental health and spiritual warfare. A medical doctor, board certified in neurology, psychiatry, and family medicine, he is also a psychiatrist for the Roman Catholic Diocese of Orange, Ministry of Healing and Deliverance. Now, Dr. Luis Sandoval. All right, well, welcome to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. You're listening to the Dr. Luis Sandoval Show. I am your host, Dr. Sandoval. Um, and as always, here on our show, we talk about health. We're, you know, we're in the clinic. We talk about spiritual health, mental health, and physical health. Um, today is a continuation for any of you who joined us last week. Uh, last week, we talked about you know having a healthy family, healthy kids, and what do we do? And we had a wonderful, wonderful guest, uh, my guest Denise, who uh, joined us so that we could discuss... What happens when, you know, our, all of a sudden we're raising our children, they get older, they start making decisions on their own, and we start seeing that things don't go well, either because they start making decisions that we wish that they wouldn't have made, or sometimes, and, and we're talking in the clinic here, all of a sudden we start to notice that they have mental health issues. For those of you who joined us last week, you know that we first started talking about how important it is to decide as we're getting married is this the person I want to have children with before we even talk about the children, before we even talk about the possibility of what's going to happen to our children? Uh, what do we anticipate for them as they grow older? And we talked about the importance of making sure that we look beyond just the physical, that we listen to other people when they tell us that this would be a good match for us or not. Today, we're joined by my special guest, Denise. Again, Denise, hello. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. I'm happy. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you for joining us again. Um, one of the, Remember, one of the things we talked about was you know, picking a spouse, what happens when we get married, what happens as we move forward. And then after that, we started talking about what about the kids? And you were kind enough to share with us about, as, as we closed our last show, about your son. And as and you mentioned to me, if I recall correctly, that you started to notice that there were issues more or less when he was in high school. At this point, you had shared with us that the marriage wasn't as strong as you had hoped. Um, now your son's getting into high school and you notice that he was starting to have issues. But one of the challenges was that it didn't seem like your husband was on board with either getting him help or recognizing that there were issues there. What do you, what can you tell us about that? Right. So I think um, my husband, he recognized that my son was having the same problems that he had had, mm -hmm. but he wasn't going to admit that. And he was just in denial is what it was. And when a child is sick, it doesn't matter if it's mental illness or physical, both parents have to be on the same page because you're working with a lot of doctors, a lot of therapists, and you have to show your child that you want this for them. And if the parents are not in agreement, if they're at odds, nothing is going to happen. You know, and that's one of the things that I think in our modern day society, I know I've been listening to a lot of different uh, podcasts, all different talks on marriage and whatnot. And it's and not, you know, from the Catholic sphere and from the secular sphere. And it seems like a lot of the issues surrounding relationships are that the couples are not always on the same page. Even before getting married, there seems to be this checklist of, you know, I want to find a spouse like this. I want to find a spouse who's like this. And it's really to satisfy my needs. But as we know, once we get married and when we have kids, when there's issues with the kids, it's no longer about my needs. It's no longer about what's making me happy. I think at that point, really what we've got to look at is, did I marry somebody who we're going to come together in this moment, have a conversation, honestly and openly share how we feel about it without necessarily judging each other, and then take action and see how we can help our kid who is still in high school under our full responsibility? Right. And 
I think a lot of it goes back to our faith because that guides us in so many things that we do, even what doctor we are going to choose to to help us as a family. Uh, you know, what are we? What are the steps are going to take? You're not quick to want to do the medication. You're going to see what's going on and maybe sp- speak to somebody about the spiritual component of it. And in your particular case, what happened? So your son's in high school. The, uh, your husband's not on board. What did that look like? It was it was a disaster because then. I couldn't get him into therapy. The divorce agreement said that both parents had to agree with something. So I couldn't do something and legally get in trouble for it. So, so at this point, sorry to interrupt you, but at this point, were you already divorced or was that yes. interesting? So you were already divorced. Yes. So that makes it even more challenging, right? Because yes. this is where, you know, the church and her wisdom tells us that marriage is a sacrament and we, and, and this is where it shows you the power where all of a sudden the couple really becomes one. You know, we think it's the husband and the wife, but you become one unit. And even legally that's recognized to where one person cannot make a decision without the other person. Um, what happened at this point? So your husband, your son was not able to get therapy? No. And he was he was all for, oh, well, if dad says so, then I'm not going to do it. Because, of course, it, there was alcohol involved. Uh, there was drugs. And, of course, he didn't want to stop that lifestyle. And it's almost like his father was giving him permission because we weren't going forward to remediate anything. Well, and, and that is one of the biggest things that we see, even if it doesn't come to mental illness or, or getting therapy or getting help with, say, addictions or anything along those lines. How many times do we see with that, you know, as kids, they're, they're smart and they know that if, if mom and dad are separate, um, they can play them against each other if mom and dad aren't on the same page. Exactly. And even parents, you know, families, uh, mom and dad are together. They have to agree on what the boundaries are going to be for their children. Because if mom says one thing and dad says, oh, no, it's okay, you can do something else, then you've lost them because you want to show a united front for your children, that you're one. And then they're, they're more apt to listen. So at this point, then, your son's in high school. He's not going to get therapy at that time. What does his life trajectory look like as he's graduating high school? Well, he didn't like school. Uh, he did get a job, and he was working this job. And suddenly I get a call from his principal saying, you know, he has all the credits to graduate. He just needs about a half of a unit. He can do it uh, on his own, and then he doesn't have to go to school anymore. And I was hesitant because I wanted college for him. But again, his father said, no, it's not important. So he he did this um I guess online. Not it wasn't even online. It was where he did got he received packets, did the packets, brought them in, and he got his uh, high school diploma. So through like a home study, right? And it was through the district, through the public school, and and he okay. was the one that went, the only one that went to public school of the children. So what happened then was uh, he got into the wrong crowd. He graduated early. Mm-hmm. I didn't know he was applying to go into the military. He was doing that without letting me know, and then suddenly. Um, I'm coming home from church one morning, and there's police cars everywhere, and he was arrested, and he had committed a crime, and then it spiraled from there. Now, and Okay, so let's back up a little bit there, because how, how shocking that must, must be as a parent 
where you know you're trying what you can for your your child you realize that at this point now they're adults and they they get to make their own decisions right if he graduated high school according to our our rules regulations and laws he's now uh, on his own so to speak and he can move out of the house if he wants to if he's 18 and you know our country our laws are such that from the time you're 17 to 18 everything changes right all of a sudden you're 18 and it's uh, you're in a different dimension shall we say where you're considered an adult you come home and all of a sudden there's police cars around your house. How yeah. did that, what what kind of impact did that have on you? What went, what went through your mind? Well, I stopped to talk to a neighbor who goes to my church and I said, what's going on? She goes, it's at your house. And then as I pulled slowly, I saw my son sitting on the ground with all the police. They wouldn't tell me anything. I said, I'm his mother. They said, it doesn't matter. He was 18 last month. I said, lovely. There it is. And, there, and you know, so you see it. There it is. All of a sudden he's 18. And as parents, we are 100% helpless or we're made to feel that way, right? Because the, the, by the laws of, of the world, of, of the society we live in, all of a sudden the police don't tell you anything. Everything's quasi-private, kind of public, kind of whatever it is. But you are no longer allowed to find things out. And I think that this is a lot of the frustrations I get from a lot of the parents that come to see me uh, about their kids, about wanting to help their kids, or kids got into drugs, or kids are suffering from you know, schizophrenia or psychosis after doing drugs, or just inherited it, their kids are depressed, and they're asking me, what can I do? And technically speaking, sometimes the answers are lacking for what they're expecting, because a lot of the parents want to know that, oh, there's a specific medication out there, or there is a therapy out there that you can do, but the reality is, as parents, there's not a whole lot you can do directly because if the person doesn't want help themselves, you, you can't force it. It wouldn't be legal to force it. It's like we say, you can bring the horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And a lot of times parents, that's really hard to deal with where all of a sudden we say, or we recognize my kids are going to make their own decisions and they might make really bad decisions where they end up in handcuffs, as you saw, and there's nothing I can do about that. Right. Well, then that's when you go to plan B. So the first thing you want to do is pray, pray, pray. You get your, your prayer warriors together. You let people know it's not good to people say, oh, I don't want to let anybody know it's embarrassing. No, you need friends at that, at that time. You need family to rally around, to pray. And then also you, uh, I went to people I knew in the community, especially from my church, who were involved in the legal field, in the police work. And you have to do what, what you can do to, to help. But my own, my whole goal was not to, you know, find him not guilty. My goal was to try to make them understand that he wasn't well and that they should take that into account. Now, him ending up, and you don't have to reveal any details you don't want to, but I think it resonates with a lot of our listeners, him ending up in handcuffs and legal issues, was this due, would you say, to drug use? Was it due to mental illness? What was it due to? I think the drug use uh, made the mental illness worse. What kind of drugs were involved? Uh, well, there was alcohol, and I consider that a drug. Sure. It does the same thing to your body. Sure. Sometimes worse. And then uh, there was marijuana involved. I don't know what else, but I know those for sure. You know, a few interesting points there for our listeners. You know, you, you bring up a really, really uh, important point is what constitutes a drug? And, you know, we, we hear and we know the big names, right? You hear names like cocaine or heroin or methamphetamine. And automatically everybody says, oh, yeah, those are drugs. Those are bad. But when we, you know, and I know we're coming to a close here at the break. Uh, but when we come back from the show, we're going to talk a little bit more about what constitutes a drug 
in terms of what's controlling your life that can make you end up in handcuffs. Maybe not legally, maybe not with the, with the police, but maybe socially, maybe where you're cuffed and trapped away from your family or your job or just from your spiritual life where you can't function. More about that when we come back from the break. Welcome back to the Dr. Sandoval Show here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'd like to thank all of our listeners who are tuning in. As always, feel free to contact me at the email, drsandovaldmpr at gmail.com. That's dr.sandovaldmpr at gmail.com. Love to answer your questions, hear what's going on in your life, and see if we can help each other out. Today we're talking about families and raising children and the challenges of raising children as they get older. They're making their own decisions, especially in the light of sometimes when all of a sudden there's a divorce in place or mom and dad aren't on the same page. How do we help people out? We're joined by our special guest, Denise, here today on our show, who is kind enough to share her story of the things that she experienced raising children and going through a divorce herself. Um, when we left off in the last section here, Denise, you were telling us that you know you 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 got home, you see police lights, you see that your son's in trouble, um, and you're wondering if there was drugs involved or anything along those lines. You know that there's alcohol involved, and you said you know alcohol was probably involved, and I consider that a drug. One of the important things to consider is what is a drug? In the classical sense, let me read you a definition of what a drug is. I just looked this up online, just did a general search. It says, a medicine or other substance which has a physiologic effect when ingested or otherwise introduced to the body. It's a very general definition. It's a good definition. Um, it says it has a physiological effect, which means it changes the body. If we think of it that way, anything can turn into a drug. Um, but when we say the word drug, it has a negative connotation to it because we know that a drug really uh, is going to change how we view the world. This definition just says it has a physiologic effect. Well, by that definition, I could say that water is a drug because that's going to hydrate me. It's going to have a physiologic effect when I ingest it. But one thing that's interesting to note is we talked about alcohol. Challenge with alcohol is it's a legal drug, shall we say. We can get it anywhere we want. We can go to the gas station and pick it up. Uh, Denise, what do you think about that? What do you? What was your experience in terms of how did alcohol affect your son? Well, I think that was the main problem because it continues to be a problem today and he's in his 30s. I think alcohol is more of a problem than drugs. If people know you're taking drugs, they're going to... Um, put you aside. You're not going to be invited to things. You're going to be ostracized by the community. But you give a party and people have alcohol and you know the people, they get happy and they get drunk and everybody's okay with it. But they don't know the long-term effects. They don't know the other side of it because then someone could come home, continue to drink, and they have no control on it. And it's difficult. That's right, because there's the, and this is what I want our listeners to understand, there are the legal drugs and there's the illegal drugs. The illegal drugs we know about very easily. You know, those are the ones that you know you're going to get arrested for. You know that you have to go deal, you know, find it somewhere. Uh, you have to find a dealer. You have to find somebody dark, deep, where you just can't get it. The legal drugs are substances that can alter our, main, our, our brain, bodies, and we can get them no problem. We're talking about alcohol. We're talking about nicotine. And guess what? Anything could really be a drug because anything that's ingested or otherwise introduced into the body, if it is changing our mind to the point where we are addicted to it, we can't get away from it, we feel like we need it or we're not going to survive without it, even if we don't need it, 
anything can be a drug. This is why families are torn apart where people are, what we say, workaholics, where people take on so much work or they keep working or they don't know when to stop working. And all of a sudden, guess what? That you're ingesting that work and maybe not, you're not eating it, you're not consuming it, but through your eyes, through your senses, through your mind, that work is consuming you and it's keeping you from living a life with your family. Other times people will get addicted to video games and they just can't stop playing video games. You're consuming that through your eyes, through your senses, and that keeps you away from your family. Anything that's keeping you away from living life and you are so attached to that one item, that substance, um, whether it, it be alcohol, whether it be video games, whether it be you know work, like we were saying, anything like that can actually be a drug. And I think alcohol, people don't realize it's a depressant. So you see people, they drink alcohol, and sometimes they lose their inhibitions, and so they seem happy. But ultimately, it's a depressant. And so when you have mental illness or you have something that's really bothering you and drink alcohol, it's a double whammy, and then you're, you're going down the tubes after that. At what point after you came home and uh, your son was in handcuffs and, and I'm, I'm assuming he was taken away? Yes. By the police, and then at what point were you actually able to talk to him after that? How much longer after that were you able to talk to him? It was quite a while because I my children always knew if they're arrested, I'm not giving bail. Right. You've you've done this. You're going to have to suffer the consequences. I am I was not then and I'm not now in a financial position to have hired an attorney so he received a court-appointed attorney, mm-hmm. and so it took a while because they have to process them in, and they go in here in Los Angeles County. You go to Men's Central or uh, you know Twin Towers, and then then after they they're they're shuffled back and forth to the courtroom, and so I don't even think I was able to speak to him before I ever saw him in court. I contacted the uh, the attorney he was given. And then I contacted attorneys that I knew, and they helped me. And then I worked almost like a paralegal with the uh, court-appointed attorney because they don't have the resources to really help people. They have so many clients, so that was an issue. But I think I did what I could to help just so that he would get a fair trial. I knew he was guilty, so... um, you know, we went from there. Sure, sure. No, absolutely. And, but what would you say the time was? Would it, was it a couple of weeks, a month before you were able to talk to him? Probably a month. About him. So now there's a month between the time that, uh, that this, the incident occurred and then the time you're able to talk to him. My question is, what was his attitude? What happened when you talked to him? Did he recognize that he had a problem with alcohol? Did he, did he feel that this was a problem? Did he, was he aware of it? What was his attitude towards you and the situation? No, he never mentioned the the alcohol or the drug use. It was all about he was sorry what he did. And um, there was a lot of other things going on. But uh, basically, uh, he was looking at hopefully getting a plea bargain. That was the whole thing. He never really recognized that drugs or alcohol was the problem. And this was he was how old at this time? He was 18? He was 18 and one month. So 18 in a month and all of a sudden everything changes, right? Because had he been 17, had it been a month and a day before, he would. this probably would have been a, a very different scenario. Exactly. And it's amazing that we're the only country that sets ages for everything we do, um, even going to school. I remember speaking to a priest from Nigeria and he was always laughing that we put our children in soccer when they're three years old and four years old. And I said, well, when do you put your children in that? When do you, when do they start school? He says, that's when we start them in soccer. I said, well, what age do they start school? He says, it depends on the child. When the child 
when the mother goes shopping, goes to the village, and the child goes on its own away from the mother, they know it's time that they can go to school. They're independent at that point. But we don't do that in America. I, I, as a teacher, I used to see little five-year-olds, and they couldn't let go of their mothers, and they were screaming and crying, and we'd say, oh, no, you have to go. I think this is one of, this is one of the important points that, that, you know, when we look at different cultures and when we look at what's best for our families, you know, obviously here, like you said, we have these rules of the child's a certain age, and they're ready for this school for, you know, a certain grade. Um, when by, you know, you graduate high school by the time you're 18, usually, you know, we have the legal rules of when are you allowed to drink, when are you allowed to smoke, um, all these different rules that are age-based. But you're right. I think that as parents, there are some things that we know about our children where we can say, look, they're not ready for this right now. And maybe other cultures do that. Other other cultures are, are very good at doing that. I think that there would be a big benefit if, uh, for us as parents to take a step back and also say, you know, yes, these are the rules that we go by here. But really, if I get to know my kid, what are they ready for right now in terms of making decisions for themselves, in terms of spiritual decisions for themselves? What do you think of that? Well, I, I think that's true because I know one of my children, he's very outgoing and he has a different outlook. My older one that got into all the trouble, he was very um, shy. He was not very forward. And I remember even at lunchtime, he would run home from school uh, in high school. Uh, if he had to use the restroom or if he had to eat something, he was afraid to do it in front of others. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he was very, not very sociable. Now, mm-hmm. see, the alcohol, when he drinks the alcohol, he's a completely different animal, see? So we have to teach our children to be okay with the way they are without any, without taking anything. And so then at this point, we're about 13 years later from this incident, more or less. Is that about right? Say 15 years? Uh, let's see. Yeah, 18. Yeah, it's about 13 years. About 13 years from this incident. How has there been any growth? Has there been any change? Has there been any uh, difference in attitude in terms of your son? How has he grown in this time? Because you're saying alcohol is still an issue for him. So if the alcohol is still there, and we could be talking about cocaine, we could be talking about methamphetamine. In this particular case, it happens to be alcohol. What has, how does that affect him? Has he grown out of it? Has he he recognized as an issue or where is he at 13 years later? He's been through a lot of programs. Uh, A year ago, he was on a year-long program. It was an outpatient. He was doing great. He was on track. He was working. And then something happens in in his life. And then he's back to, he quits or he gets fired and he's drinking again. Uh, He was doing well for a couple of months now, working. He had a job offer. And then all of a sudden, a couple of days ago, he got a hold of some wine and he's back down. It's it's a roller coaster. Does he recognize this as a problem? Sometimes he does, but when he starts drinking, all that goes out the window. He's not the person that, that he's to be. So hang on. So this is very important because if, if sometimes he does, where are the moments where, in your case in particular, how do you know he recognizes? Where are, the, where are these moments where he might say, this is an issue? He realizes it. He's been crying. Then he realizes he's a, he apologizes he has his plan. He, he says how much he's going to uh, do. He's, he's got a job offer. He, ma- he makes all these plans like anybody would, any young person would sure. do. These are the things, my goals, sure. what I hope to do, a timeline. And then the alcohol hits and it all goes down the drain. I think, I mean, honestly, I think it's a really good sign that he gets to the moment where he actually makes plans and goals and has this. One of the questions I would wonder, and I don't know if this has ever come up in your conversations with him, but does he ever, when, when he's in these moments where he recognizes and he says, yeah, no, this is not good. I need to change my life. I need to set these goals for myself. 
does he ever have any insight, any lucidity, or any thoughts on why the alcohol is a problem, or when did it start to be a problem, or anything associated with that? He just, um, I think he recognizes that he, he needs something. He's, he's on edge, and his mind starts to race. Mm. And I think if he was on some kind of medication, it would be much better. But he, he goes to alcohol, and I think because he doesn't have a lot of money, so that's a cheap way of, of sure. sedating himself. He, he's self-medicating is what he's doing. Sure, it's a legal, quick, uh, cheap fix. Yeah. And in all this time, where is dad? What happened with his dad? Where, what's his, where's his status? What's his opinion in terms of taking care of his son? Not in the picture uh, for two of the three children that we had. Not in the picture at all. But I think it was their choice because he was so abusive and he is still an addict. A different drug of choice is different. So they don't want to be associated with him. But did he, I guess my question is, when, I mean, when, when your son was, uh, started to have legal issues, did, did you mention it to his dad? Did, did he find out about it? Did he make, have any interest in it? Anything like that? Uh, he knew about it, but he had no interest in getting involved. So, and does your son ever bring him up or does he ever talk about him or, or wonder why he wasn't involved or anything? No, I know years ago when he had a really bad breakdown and I had to call the pet, you know, psychiatric sure. evaluation team, which sure. most sheriff departments have. And at this time it was San Bernardino. Uh, his father was involved at that time, but made things worse. And my son was having a flashback of his father, which caused him to be agitated. Interesting to look at and more we're going to, when we come back from the break, you know, how important is it for both parents to be on board and what impact does that have for the children in terms of making their decisions? More about that when we come back because stories might be able to change when both parents are involved. All right. Well, welcome back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. You're listening to Dr. Sandoval's show here, and I am your host, Dr. Sandoval, joined today by our special guest, Denise, who is sharing her story of being a mom and having to deal with alcoholism, mental illness in her family, and how we deal with that. Uh, now, Denise, what you were telling me is that as your son was going through these tough issues, dad was not involved. One of the questions I would have is, do you feel that it would have made a difference that if had dad been involved, let's say at the junior high, or actually at what level do you feel it would have been made a difference for dad to be involved? Junior high, high school, before that? What do you think? I think throughout a child's life because they learn. And early on, he was present for them, but he had issues. And then once they were, um, you know, 10, 8, 6 years old, that's when the divorce happened. And he was, it wasn't about being involved. It was you know, a lot of games with uh, time, you know, wanting time just so you don't have to pay as much. I mean, women who have been divorced understand that. But uh, he didn't really get involved in a lot of things, uh, especially when they received their sacraments. I remember with my youngest, he was supposed to be at the communion and he didn't show up. So when we walked up to the altar with uh, my son, my mother had to 
come with me so he wouldn't feel bad that because everyone else had mom and dad. Sure, sure. So it became more of a, of a custody battle issue that I know right. a lot of our listeners have uh, heard of or dealt with, especially when it comes to divorce. Um, in terms of your son right now, and we can get back to that a little bit in terms of, of the parents, but in terms of your son right now, what are when he does have these moments where he says, you know, I'm, I'm not going to drink anymore. I'm going to change my life around. What are his hopes and dreams at that time? What would he like his life to look like? He would like to. He's very highly intelligent, but yet every field he goes into, because of his criminal record, he can't always move forward. So he received a degree in dental assisting Mm -hmm. with the hopes that someday he would be a dental hygienist, and he can't because you can't get that license with a felony. So a lot of things is tied up with with what happened because of the drugs and the alcohol. You know, it's that's how a lot of children men and, and women both uh, get limited because they drink alcohol or do drugs and then they commit a crime. And that kind of, that stays with you your life. It takes a lot of money and a lot of years and effort to get all of that washed away from your record. It changes everything. It changes, it, it does change the trajectory of your life. And one of the biggest things that must be a heartache for you is that, you know, we see this, people see it from different angles. I'm sure that your son sees it one way. And, and when, if you speak to him about it, he might have an opinion on it. But I think as a parent, when we take a step back, we always look at this as this did not have to be like this at all. This totally could have been preventable. Right. And um, I see other families and when the father is strong and when the father uh, is close to God and he goes to church and he shows the children that's what's most important. Children seem to do well. It's just, it's a given. Now you just said something that can be very controversial in our society today. You said when the father is strong. And what do you mean by that? What does it look like to have a strong father? Well, it's not a bad thing. People think men and women are, this whole feminist movement that's so wrong, a true feminist is okay with being a woman. And you can be a strong woman, as I have had to been with raising these children. But men and women, husband and wife, we complement each other. It's God's beauty. It's what JP2 wrote on Theology of the Body. We complement each other. So when a father is strong, he is the alpha dog. He is the one that's going to lead the family. And when a child sees that, it helps a girl know what kind of a man she wants to marry. Because if her father is a good man... She wants a man that's going to imitate her father. And um, a young man, that's who he imitates. I I said that before. When a boy, you see a boy imitating his father a lot, that's a good thing because he's learned the good habits that his father has given to him, not only by what he says, but how he acts, how he treats other people, how he treats mom. That's so important. What would you tell our dads who are out there listening? What do you think, you know, going through this process, having been through a divorce and now having to deal with children who are having issues uh, and you're going to be taking care of this on your own as a mom, as a single mom at this point is what would it be considered? What kind of advice, what would you tell dads? What does it look like to be a strong man? Okay. Well, if a dad is married, he's got to support the mom. Even in a divorce, they have to work together. They have to co-parent, but they have to do what's best for the child. And the spirituality has to be there. You can't say, oh, leave God out of this. That's what I used to hear. You can't. That everything that our lives, everything that goes well, it's because of God. He's our leader. We have to look to him. We have to pray. This year is so important. St. Joseph, uh, terror of demons. That's who we need to call upon when we're dealing with mental illness. We've got to recognize that a lot of mental illness, and you must see this as as a doctor, is the devil. And when the devil, uh, that's what 
That's what the devil wants us to think that, oh, there's no, there's no such thing as a devil. Sure. Cause then we're giving, we're giving kids pills and we're doing all this crazy kind of therapy when prayer is number one. Parents working together, praying together, being on the same page, recognizing a child has a problem and working together to solve it. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned all that because that's when I talk to the dads that I speak to uh, when they come for therapy or things of that nature, um, one of the things that we always discuss is, well, what's your role in the family? And a lot of dads are confused nowadays because they don't want to say the wrong thing because of what they hear, what society tells them. You know, we hear all this thing about men being bad and toxic masculinity and the patriarchy and things of that, things of that nature that really make it seem like men are just really bad and we're evil. And I always tell them, take a step back. Don't listen to what society's telling you. Listen to what God's telling you. God made us men. God made us women. And he, he created a family structure. There's no question about that. And I said, and regardless of what society is telling you, you're going to have a role as a dad in the family. And what that role looks like sometimes is not what society is going to tell you it looks like. Sometimes it's just being in the house, being present. Everybody knows that you're there. I tell them it's kind of like a lion's den in that sense, you know. Maybe the lion doesn't always go kill, do the kill. Maybe the lionesses are doing the kills or whatnot. But the, the lion has a presence and knowing that the lion's there brings security and it makes the kids feel safe. It makes the wife feel safe and it makes them know that you are taking care of the household. Absolutely. And I don't believe in that, um, you know, toxic masculinity. Men have to be masculine. That's the way our, our bodies are made. Uh, it's the problem that they, they think they shouldn't be that we're getting a lot of children who are confused about if they're a boy or girl. And God only made men and women. There's not a third thing. Get over that. And then what I always tell my dads is don't be afraid to uh, recognize that you are the protector of the household. And because of, you know, as we always hear the, the usual stereotype, if something goes bump in the night, well, dad better go check that out, right? Nobody else is going to check it out. Mom, stay with the kids. Dad's going to go check that out. But I tell them, you know, if something's going bump in the spiritual life of your family, you're the protector too. You're the spiritual protector. You got to be ready to be there with rosary in hand, with, with prayer in your heart to protect your family. Absolutely. I know a lot of times, uh, when I was growing up, boys, oh, they cried. Oh, don't cry. Be tough. You know, uh, you know, shake it off kind of thing. And so they were afraid to show their emotions. Well, that's what a good marriage is for, to be able to share with one another. So to let when you're hurting, to let each other know that's what works. And it's OK to let your children see that you're hurt. Uh, a lot of times I'll tell my kids, I don't know what to do right now. I really don't know. I've got to pray about it. I just don't know what to do because we don't have all the answers. That's We're human. Does your son ever say that he misses or wishes dad would have been around? No, because it, it was so much abuse that he sees that as a negative thing. Um, my youngest one is in contact with his father, uh, and I don't stop that and I don't discourage that. Um, and I encourage them to continue to have a relationship with their grandparents, with their paternal grandparents, with their paternal aunts and uncles. I encourage that on a regular basis. I'm on good terms with, with that family uh, to this day, all these years later. But, um, you know, I just avoid the confrontation with, with my ex. And did they have any positive male role models growing up after, you know, aside from since their dad wasn't around or was having his own issues, were there any positive male role models around for your kids? Uh, pretty much not, except coaches here and there, or maybe uh, couples that we knew, or uh, maybe the father of one of their friends. I know when my youngest went to, they go on the trip in eighth grade, a lot of those dads took him under their wings, you know, so it's that kind of thing. But 
definitely the parish priest. If you trust your parish priest, uh, your pastor, I mean, I have a wonderful pastor and parish priest. I would, I know they're the kind of priest that would give their life for their flock. Uh, that is so important for young men, so important. Young women as well, but especially the young men to become altar servers and acolytes to see how you can serve God in that way. Uh, they are able to bring them to God and show them that that's the way you solve problems. I, th- I think it's that similar role because just like you mentioned, you know, I think we're, we're the reason we call our parish priest father, you know, they're like a spiritual father. And then we call our dads, you know, our fathers in the homes father. I think we have a very, very similar role. We can't forget what St. Paul said. I know a lot of people think it's very uh frustrating or, or, or very chauvinistic where it says, you know, women be submissive to your husbands. But what they forget is to read on to the next line where it says, husbands, love your wife the way Christ loved the church. And what that really means is you're going to give your life for this person. You're going to be at service of this person because that's what Christ did. He's at service of the church. You're not going to follow your own will. You're going to follow God's will and what's best for your family. In other words, you're going to give up your life, your will, and you're going to sacrifice everything for the betterment of your wife. And what I really think that that, that reading is saying is, wife, allow your husbands to serve you. Right. And it's, it's again, it's like 100%, 100%. It's not who's going to be stronger, who's going to make the rules. Uh, couples as parents have to work together and show this is what we want you to do. And if you do it that way, it, it works every time. How do you think things would have been different for your son? I know this is speculation. It's hard to say. But let's say that his dad would have had a positive uh, influence in his life or would have sat down with him and given him some good counsel. How do you think things would have been different in his life? I think he would have handled the mental illness early on. He would not have self-medicated. And by this time, I think he probably would have had it under control with doing other things, staying, keeping his mind busy. Uh, he was in, when he was younger, in junior high, he was, they noticed that he was way above on IQ, way mm-hmm. above. So that, his mind's always turning. So if he was able to channel that into a good job and get that support, I think he would have been on track by now. I really feel that way. And would you say that the mental illness is limited to the alcohol or would you say that there's uh, other aspects associated with it? I think there's other aspects because he seemed to, he cannot go a long period of time without it. And when he is on the medication that doctors give him, he's able to, to stay at a level field. That's More about that when we come back. It's interesting because once we are uh, getting somebody help and once they're on medication, we can see that they're doing really well. But sometimes they feel like I am doing well. I'm not going to take the medication anymore. Maybe I can stop taking it. And then things go south. We're going to talk a little bit more about the medication, possible treatment for mental illness, and how to help our families when we come back from the break. All right. Welcome back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. You're listening to the Dr. Sandoval Show. And today we're talking about families and kids and what do we do as parents uh, in order to help our kids when they're going through any kind of addiction, mental illness, or anything along those lines. Um, and today we're joined by our special guest, of course, Denise, who's sharing her story of, of her family. And one of the things I wonder, Denise, so you mentioned that your son does get treatment. He is getting treatment. And, you, you know, we don't have to disclose too much, but I know that a lot of my patients, a lot of my parents say, my kid's depressed, my kid is hallucinating, my kid suffers from anxiety, and we've gone to the doctor, they get treatment, they get medication, they get better, and then they stop it. Has that been your experience? Yes, and it has to be ongoing And I know some medications, I know when he was really, really bad and he was taken in and was in a facility, once he came home, the doctor had him on a shot Mm -hmm. because 
they're not going to take the pills every day. But if he has to go into the office, then they monitor him and he gets a shot. And it's good for, I don't know if it was two weeks or something. And that was for the schizophrenia. Right. So there are different modalities of medication. So some of them are pills that you need to take every day. Other uh, uh, presentations of that medication are in the shot form. And those are depot shots, as we call them. Some of them last four weeks. Some of them last two weeks, depending on the medication. And, and it's very dependent on the person, too, as to which is the more most efficacious for, for each individual. Not everyone's going to do well on each one. Was he doing well when he was getting the shot? He was. I, but going back, I think the most important thing a, a parent can do when you have an adult child that has illness is to make sure that they put you on their information, that they have that HEPA uh, requirement so that it's okay for the doctors to talk to you about it. They, when they leave a message uh, on the, we had a home phone, and when they would leave a message, they wouldn't even say, you know, they would just say this is a message for, and they'd give his name. Mm-hmm. But they, and I knew it was the doctor, but they mm-hmm. wouldn't say that because they have to be so careful that no one knows that they're seeing a doctor. Right. One of the things is as physicians, we are very limited due to privacy concerns as to what we can share and who we can share it with when it comes to somebody's medical health care. Uh, if somebody is not, let's say somebody suffers from cognitive decline or they're not thinking clearly, then it's a lot more obvious that you're going to talk to their caregiver. But one of the things that happens in a lot of frustrations for parents is that once kids are adults and once they turn 18 or once they go somewhere, we're not allowed to share anything they don't they don't want us to share. And I think you're absolutely right. I think it's great for parents to stop, sit down, talk to their kids and say, hey, please put me on there so that we can share information. Because if you stop taking your medication, you're not well, you're in the hospital, who's going to help you out? How am I going to know? Exactly. But you have to get them to agree to that when they are okay, when they're on the level field. Because once they're in an episode, they're not going to agree to that. They're in their zone and they're afraid to let anybody know what's going on. Yeah, there was a big shock to uh, a patient. I had a patient who I was treating and he was 17. He had some schizophrenia and he wasn't always, do, you know, he would do the same thing. He would do the song and dance with the medication. He'd take his medication. He was okay. And then he would stop it. Well, lo and behold, he turns 18 and he ends up in the hospital And he did not allow the parents to know anything. He didn't want any contact with the parents. He was going to be discharged from the hospital. And the parents didn't know where he was going to end up or where he was going. And they became very frustrated and got upset with me and said, how could, how could you allow this to happen? And I had to explain to them what the rules were. It was very frustrating. And they were, they were very frustrated about that, but I had to explain to them, no, you know, by, by law, uh, he's in charge now he's in control. Right. And sometimes you see it on the news. I remember the case down in Orange County with a young man and, he got into trouble with the police and he ended up uh, getting hurt because he attacked the police and he died from it. And people would say, well, how can these parents love them? They let them out on the street and they don't understand when your child is, has schizophrenia or, or any kind of illness in that way. You can't put the rest of the family in jeopardy. And if they choose to be homeless, you have to, there's only so much you can do. Your hands are tied. And this is absolutely, and this is where I encourage parents and family members to really demystify what medication is, to get rid of the stigma for your family members, to let them know it's okay to be on it, to let them know that there's nothing wrong with them because they're on it. A lot of times people feel like, well, there's something wrong with me. I don't need to be on medication. I should be able to be strong enough in my mind to get over whatever emotions or symptoms I'm having without having to take a pill, 
what's wrong with me. And I think if nothing else, what I tell patients and family members, think of it as a vitamin at that point. If somebody told you you needed vitamin C or you needed to get some kind of over-the-counter magnesium or something, nobody bats an eyelash at it. And everybody says, oh, I better take my vitamin C. And everybody around them says, yeah, take your vitamins. At this point, you want to think of these medications as vitamins because if they're helping the brain to stay steady and even and helping you feel like yourself, then what a better way to lead a good life and have, you know, meet your goals as, as you keep going through life. Absolutely. And you said the whole idea of demystifying. I've been to so many funerals over the years. And when it's someone who has died because of mental illness, uh, because they've overdosed or they've hurt themselves or they did something that caused their death, no one talks about it. They just say it's a medical condition or the family wants it private. But if they die of cancer or a car accident, everybody's talking about the cause, you know, helping the cancer society, helping the drunk drivers, that kind of thing. We need to get that the word out. I have no problem with letting friends know that that I have a child that has mental illness because it's not something you want to be ashamed of. If they have an illness, you're their parent. You love them. You want them to get better. Hiding it's not going to help. It's true. And, you know, I had a, I had a very, very sad case where I was treating a patient and he had, he, because he had been using methamphetamine, he was no longer thinking clearly. He needed medication, antipsychotics, because he'd become psychotic from the use of this drug. And culturally, the family was very opposed to medication because they felt that uh, he should be okay without medication. They felt that it was either a sign of weakness or the medications were going to make them worse. As much as I tried to educate them, the mom withheld all, inf- all medication from him. And unfortunately, he ended up committing suicide. Yes. Uh, we have to understand the brain, you know, you talk about uncharted area, that, that's the brain. We still don't know so much about it. And to think that if you broke an arm, wouldn't you do everything for that arm? Well, if you have something wrong with the mind, there's so many different options to, to handle it, to cure it. But you want to get it to be better so that it controls the whole body. That's so important. And why would you just push it aside. Yeah. And I think as a parent, I mean, I don't know what your experience is, how, how receptive your son is to this, but it sounds like you're very supportive of him. It sounds like you, you want him to get the help, but is he receptive to when you tell him this or have these conversations? No, not. I've tried to wait till he's on a sober, but mm-hmm. sometimes if he's just coming down from it and he's angry and he's, you know, he cooks his own food and I can hear it so loud in the kitchen. I'm just waiting for something to break. He's not going to want to talk about it. It's sometimes when he gets to his lowest point and then he wants help, I can talk to him about it. The problem is, and the reason why I think it needs deliverance ministry is that he he is quick to attack our faith, mm. He's always quick to attack our faith. And when he does that, I've got to think that, that the evil one's behind it. And this is where I think as parents, we got to remember, not only are we going to help our kids with their mental illnesses, with their physical illnesses, getting to the right doctor, but spiritually, we're still responsible. We have that authority and we still have the capability of praying. This is one of the things that when our kids turn 18 and we start to feel helpless because either we're not going to get information from the doctor or they're going to make their own decisions without consulting us and you know, who knows what the consequences are of those decisions, sometimes good, sometimes bad, we can never forget or let go of our faith and realize that we still have the power to pray for them. And that's still efficacious. Right. Even as adults, we have dominion over our children. God has given that to us when we became parents. So you're, you're never too old and your children are never too old to pray for them, to keep encouraging them to go back to God if they're not going to church, uh, to con- get them in contact with people that you know, other family members or relatives, neighbors, 
that believe in God and want to do what's best because they'll see that and they'll see, well, maybe that will work. I mean, it, it's, you've got to keep, don't ever give up. That's the key. Don't ever give up on your child. Yeah, and I think one of the important things, because in society, this is where we really need to take that step back and put a Catholic eye on this. As a society, we talk about 18, they're adults. We're no longer technically responsible for them in the eyes of the law, shall we say. But in the eyes of God, the parent-child relationship never changes. There's never a time where God will say that that child stopped being a, your child. They might have changed in terms of their level of responsibility. They might have gotten married and had a family of their own, or they've moved because of a career or whatnot. But that parent-child relationship never ends. Right. And and until you have a child that has mental illness, a lot of families don't understand that. They're like, oh, we'll just throw them out. Well, I've given that. I've done that once before. I've had to do that. I said, you're destroying everything with your brother and sister and, and myself and your grandmother you need to leave. And I drove him to where he wanted to go. And I let him there. And it wasn't long after that I received a call. He was in a mental hospital. Yeah. And he realized he had hit rock bottom. It's a hard decision to make. And a lot of parents uh, suffer because they're not ready to make this, that decision. I don't judge anybody on it. But sometimes they say, well, doctor, we already set the rules. We told them, you know, if you're going to be in this house, you have to behave like this and like this and like this. And they don't want to behave like that. What do we do now? And I said, well, you set the rules. You said that they couldn't be there if they if they were destructive or if they weren't following taking their medication or if they weren't doing these things and you told them that they couldn't live there, they have to leave. And then they don't know how to follow that step. What was that like for you? It was hard and I got pushed back from other people. How can you do that? It's, it's what's best for the whole family, I said. And I think he needed to see because he thought, oh, I can make it on my own. This is fine. No problem. I remember dropping him off on this hiking trail. And he thought, oh, yeah, he took the family tent. Oh, yeah, life's going to be great. Okay, that didn't last long. So it, they don't realize, because they're not in their right mind, they don't realize what they're they're putting themselves into. And, and then what would have been the alternative had you stayed home? Uh, probably hurting his siblings, hurting uh, his grandmother, hurting me, destroying things, uh, getting us kicked out of our where we were, yeah. you know, uh, uh, so yeah, you have to you have to do what's best for the whole family. It's a hard decision to make, but sometimes that's what I tell parents. If you know, they say, "But my kid's going to sleep on the street for the night." And I say, "Sometimes they got to sleep on the street for the night." You know, depending on on this is we got to remember they've made choices, and this is where they are also adults. Yes, we're still parents; we still want to care for them, but now they're making decisions that they can make good decisions just as much as they can make the bad decisions, and and we have no say in that whatsoever. I think back to my parents; I can't blame my parents for all the decisions I've made in my life. Right. And even when, when I did drive him off and leave him there, I was praying for myself that God give me peace, that if something sure. did happen to him, that was the choice he made. I had to, because there was not a dad in the house, I had to be the head of household. I had to protect the rest of the family. I had to protect the roof over our head, his grandmother. I had to do all of that. But it sounds like he could have come back home had he been taking his medication. Right. And he chose not to. And it, until he got to a mental facility and then they put him on it and they monitored him. And then he he was amazed at how good he felt taking this medication. So, then, you know, and I know our show is coming to a close here, but just a few closing remarks. You know, these are such intense situations that happen. A lot of families go through this. What I would leave our, our listeners with is this one. Be supportive of your children if they are having mental illnesses. Let them know that 
you want them to take their medication, you want them to be well, you want them to be stable. If they, as parents, never stop praying for your children. And I know we talked about families before and, and making, how do we choose the right spouse? And if we are gonna have children, how do we know we're gonna have good children? One of the things that I would say as a parent, start praying for your children's future spouse to hopefully uh, that they find somebody with the same values, that they're gonna have a good family, that they're gonna have stable children. What do you think, Denise? Absolutely. You can start when you have your child to start praying that's that right. they find the right person. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening. Hope you tune in next week as well. Denise, as always, a pleasure. We might have you back on the show uh, if, if listeners have questions in the future. 